We have to stop blaming feminism. If somebody is engaging in OnlyFans content, why is that a bad thing? The critique of that is coming from an expectation that women or people in feminine bodies shouldn't have agency over their own desire. We've grown up in an incredibly patriarchal system and it's pervasive across every industry, every domain, every experience of life. It's important to look at our relationships with power and how we attribute power to gender and start thinking about where we are expecting people to subvert their own autonomy and agency and where we're expecting other people to have more. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. I'm super excited for today's guest, two-time reigning champion on the show, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. She is one of the leading sex therapists in the country. She's a consultant for multiple huge social media platforms and also runs her own podcast called Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm thrilled to be here. It's it's been a, I think it's been a good like year and a half that we did mm-hmm. that episode. I can't believe it's been that long, and we had a great conversation um, about sex and sexual health, and um, got so much amazing feedback from that show. But for those that don't know you, what would you say if you had to define your mission and the mission mm-hmm. that you're on? What would that be? Oh wow, great question. Um, do I have to have just one mission? No. <laughs> No, you don't. <laughs> um, I think one of the main missions that that I'm on in my life is to help people move away from a place of pain or shame when it comes to their sexuality into a place of liberation, pleasure, thriving, integration, and fun and, and meaning. So that can take a lot of shapes and forms and a lot of mini missions um, prop up that larger one. But I would say that's probably the biggest goal that I have. Yeah. And I think that's why I was attracted to your platform and, and why I had you on the show initially. And we we tend to have a lot of side conversations, you guys. And our side conversations are so good. And one of them I really wanted to have an episode and talk a little bit about this concept of gender essentialism. And um, what I found really fascinating about this concept is the way that you broke it down. And so I would love for you to explain to everyone listening, because there are some people that have never heard this term, which is okay. A lot of people haven't. What does that mean? And why is it important? So gender Gender essentialism is a super important term because it helps us understand the way we think about gender as a construct. And a lot of folks grow up thinking that there are specific traits that are biologically organized and unique to people of different genders. And this is gender essentialism, right? It's it's basically a theory that says There are specific intrinsic qualities that are rooted in evolution, nature, biology, and they are fixed, immutable, and specific to gender. And the reason this is important to, I think, know is because we we have to be able to challenge it, right? This would create a really rigid understanding of human beings and human nature. And it is something that a lot of people really fully believe 
Um, but it's created for society, for individuals and in romantic relationships and sexual relationships, a lot of problems and a lot of room for there to be a lot of jockeying for power and jockeying for uh, inequities that create people or that, that keep people fixed in really rigid and limited roles in their lives, people of all genders. So what might some of those stereotypes look like? So if we were to give like a few examples of how that might look in today's, let's say modern dating or modern relationships, can you break down maybe some of those stereotypes? Sure. I mean, some of the stereotypes are, are really loud. It's things like men can't, men shouldn't cry or men shouldn't be emotional that's rooted in a belief that has that uh, that is essentialist at its core. Of course, men should cry. Of course, men should be vulnerable and and can express a multitude of feelings. Um, human beings are born with that diverse experience of emotional capacity, but gender essentialism tells men they should only be a certain way. Um, when it comes to women, there are uh, essentialist beliefs that say women should be nurturing. Well, the reality is women are not biologically born nurturing. There are a lot of mothers who have children who are not very nurturing at all. But there's a belief that because people are born with certain genitals, that that means something about their personality and how it ought to develop. And so there's rigidity when we have a gender binary that says people should be this or should be that, and that's it. And that it really eradicates a lot of soul from people's existence. And it dismisses the scientific reality that there's tremendous diversity in how we show up in our personalities and our nervous systems and our temperaments. And that's not really related to gender as a biological truth. How it does get related to gender is the way that we've conditioned people to believe they should be. And so when you tell people they should be a certain way, they often will conform to that script or they'll rebel against it, right? And so it, it, whether or not someone shows up with these traits of essentialist belief is really uh, has more to do, in my opinion, with their relationship with authority and their relationship with a sense of safety in the world. If people feel safe enough to rebel, they will. And if people don't, they'll often conform. And so when we look at that and say, well, that's a biological truth, it's not. That's a misunderstanding of the way that human nature is shaped by the way we are nurtured. Mm, that was a good breakdown. It reminds me of Andrew Tate. Listen, for <laughs> you guys, you Tate supporters out there, I'm I'm sorry. I just can't I can't get on the Tate train. <laughs> it's 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 you know a lot of that internal misogynistic. I, I I just don't understand it. But what I hear a lot, and I remember when the whole Tate thing was big, was this talk about. Um, women should be submissive and how men want a submissive woman. And there are some women online who we won't name, but there are some women that we see that are, you know, on, on that type of same Tate train who um, have this concept of a man wants a traditional woman and a submissive woman. My question to you is, do you think that's true? Or is that something that's just built in this gender essentialism and this internal misogyny and is there anything to even back that up? 
I think this is a great opportunity to point out the diversity of human beings because men are not a monolith, women are not a monolith, and there are people who identify, you know, all along the gender continuum um, outside of these really polarized experiences of gender that that we're talking about here. Um, So there are some men who would prefer to feel very strong and competent and superior and in control. And for them, a partner who relinquishes control and is deferential to them is probably really appealing in some, in some ways. Um, And for some of those partners, some of those people who would prefer to be more submissive, if you want to use that language, um, they really benefit from not having to be responsible for things that can be okay if at its core, these people have an understanding of equity and equality, right? So having someone defer to you might make you feel big and strong and tough and, and, uh, and, you know, really good about yourself in a lot of ways. But if that requires them to subjugate their own rights, that's not really control. (laughs) That's just dominance. And that is, in my opinion, a huge show of insecurity. If you require this outside of a, a base that is rooted in equality. So do men want somebody who's submissive? I don't, I don't know. I think a lot of men who are organized around these ideas of precarious masculinity do want someone to submit to them, but I don't think that they're actually attracted to submissiveness. I think they actually are attracted to the idea of being dominant and breaking down someone's boundaries and, and taking over their rights. You know, there's a lot of inherent uh, dominator culture that comes out when we look at Western society and we look at the way that patriarchy influences people's beliefs about worthiness, control, power, value. And the act of breaking down and dominating and winning over someone's sovereignty is often the thing that creates a feeling of being worthy or powerful enough for men who are organized in this way. And so do they want someone who's submissive? No, because if they did, we would have a lot more symmetry in the men who are with podcasts and espousing these, these beliefs, they would just go after women who want that. And, and they're, and, and that would be great. There'd be a lot of quietly content folks playing out this 24 seven kink in their private lives. Um, But that's not what's happening. There is a social element to this and a desire to have social currency be related to one's position of power in your romantic relationship. And I don't think we can unsee that. So what about the people that say it's in our DNA? So for example, you have the people like Tate and, you know, some people in the podcast streaming media world with all these videos going around that says it's ancestral. It is ancestral for a man to be the provider and take the lead. And that is in our DNA. And that is how life is supposed to be, which is why women want a man who's going to provide and protect and men want a woman who can bear children and nurture. Where is that nature nurture difference? Where does the line get drawn on that? 
Well, people who say that are wildly underinformed about the history of the world before the recent few millennia. Patriarchy didn't really take its chokehold on the world until a, somewhere between four and 10,000 years ago. And before that, there was far more equity um, understood in earlier human communities. And there may have been some sex-specific roles, but it wasn't necessarily the power grab that it is today. There were many communities um, that recognized that the resources that people who gave birth had to raise the children, specifically things like breastfeeding, um, the people who were not giving birth did not have those resources to give. So this was a divide and conquer situation. Um, and what I mean by that is people looked at the whole community and said, what do I have to give to the community? And there were some people who had the resource of being able to carry a fetus and give birth and nurse a child. And there were some people who had the resources of hunting, gathering, um, protecting the communities in other ways. So this wasn't about power hierarchies back then. It was about how do we get together and share the resources that we bring so that the community, our group of humans, has the best chance of staying safe and surviving in the elements of the world. That changed when dominator culture started to get introduced um, and and then uh, imperialism, colonialism just took off like wildfire across the globe. And it's not natural to have this sort of biological belief that men are supposed to do a thing because it's in their genes. It's really about how that has been confabulated with dominator culture and this sort of hierarchical experience of human existence that has been enforced on people throughout our recent history. It's interesting, these concepts, because sometimes I, I wonder if people just use their own bias, their own narratives in order to have an excuse and justification for their own internal misogyny. But then I look at myself, and I'm going to take myself into this there are certain things and certain belief systems that I, I start to question even in myself of why I have these belief systems. For example, I have always gone into my dating roles that a man should pay on the first and second and maybe even third date if he's courting me, that a man should put in more effort because men are natural hunters and they, they should be doing that. But more lately, I start questioning, is my mindset um, – it was my mindset thinking that way because that's what I was taught or is that because that is the role of a man and man really are, they want to pursue. And how do we differentiate that? Because now I'm starting to question it, but it's so hard for me to fight what I've been taught to, let's say, go 50-50 on the first date. I can't bring myself to do it. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a really important question to be asking yourself and, and one that I know a lot of women uh, are talking about and asking themselves too. Here's, here's my thought on this. And lots of people are probably going to bristle when I say this, but we live in a patriarchal society. And so how, how I think about this is that if we're looking at heterosexual relationships, men 
have an opportunity to be just as committed to dissolving these systems of patriarchy and creating equality as women do. And there are going to be some men who say, great, let's start that by paying the bill (laughs) 50-50. And in my opinion, if that's the only thing they're doing to obliterate uh, patriarchy, then they're not really an ally and they're not really working for equality. They're exploiting feminism. They're exploiting the efforts of women to create parity in the social landscape, in the dating landscape, um, in the political landscape. And they're saying, oh, cool, this benefits me. So let me start with that. So if that's all the man is doing to fight for equality and to show up from a place of equity, he's not really thinking of you as an equal person. But so, so in that case, I would say, sure, he's pretty much a patriarchal thinker and he's really benefiting from your hard work and emotional labor to achieve equality. And so in that case, you know, have him pay for dinner. Sure. When patriarchy is completely obliterated, we can go 50-50 on a lot of these things, but it's not. And I haven't seen a wave of men fighting for equality in the same way that women have. So I think it is a really nuanced conversation that every person who's dating can ask themselves and figure out where do they feel comfortable. Um, but, but definitely when I'm looking at the equation, I'm wondering, are men also showing up with equal emotional labor, equal domestic labor? Are they shouldering half of the mental load in, in a way that feels equitable for both partners, right? Everyone's constellation of that is going to look different. Um, but when they're doing that, I think, yeah, sharing your, your financial resources 50-50 makes sense because you're also sharing these other experiences and resources in a more equitable way. But if that's not happening, ladies, do not feel bad about getting your dinner paid for. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you. Yeah, like that. Those are the things that I think about. And here's the thing, you know, and I have even her, it's not just men. It's not just men. There are some women out there who they feel very strongly, but it's interesting, but the differences are, the reasons are different. When I hear from men, they, who, who believe in the whole 50, 50 thing, it's usually because either they're not, maybe not financially stable, or they view women who want to take advantage and there are some women who maybe that is their only goal is to get their dinner paid for. Fine. I'm not saying that that's not the case. But a lot of the women that I've talked to who want to go 50-50, their reasons seem to be more about um, control and I don't want to feel like I owe him anything. That's always the answer that I hear. I don't want him to think I owe him. So by me paying my half, if I don't want to do anything or don't want to owe, I can say I paid my half and I'm out. Why do women think like that? Why do you think? Because patriarchy has created a dating system where men do expect to be able to get what they want if they pay for a woman's way in some way. Not all men, of course, but men who are organized with this sort of higher level of adherence to sexist beliefs, they do tend to exhibit a lot of entitlement. So if I pay, that means I own, that means I get And I don't think it's conscious for some of them, but definitely for many it is. And there is this expectation of of a transaction that's happening here. And so uh, many women will say, I don't want to accept this from you because 
you're not entitled to me. And the only way I know how to exhibit that control is to deny this, this sort of transactional experience from the get. And I think that's okay, right? If that gives a woman a sense of power and a sense of control and a sense of autonomy, then that is a beautiful way for her to say, you don't get to buy my time, sir. What else are you bringing to the table? What else do you have to offer, right? Because when somebody's approaching dating from a purely transactional space, which by the way, can be okay if both people or all people involved are on board with that. I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad or wrong, but what's happening is a lot of folks are showing up with transactional intentions, but they are pretending and performing relationship courtship. And that's where it gets really confusing, I think, in the dating landscape, because it's hard to understand when you don't know someone very well, what's their intention here? And there's just been a long history of you know, men expecting that they should pay, but then also expecting that they should get some benefits from doing so. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with like, if you, if you're into first date sex and that's okay with you and you're doing it safely and consensually, totally not saying that it's wrong because I think you should be able to do what you want when you want, as long as you're emotionally and physically and spiritually safe. But I do feel like you made such a good point with the transactional versus, you know, courtship and how that can really get misconstrued. And it's really difficult to do transactional type of dating when you're wanting a, uh, a man to court you or vice versa. There's this post that's been going around. I don't know if you've seen it where it's a list of places not to take a woman <laughs> on a date. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Ar- I think it's like Arby's and Chili's <laughs> and it's very 50, 50. I'm going to be honest with you. I agree with a lot of what's on that list, but my reasons are different. It's not because of the places, although I think there's way better restaurants that are out there. Personally, I wouldn't take myself to those places because it's just not in my taste. However, for me and from a lot of women that I talk to, I think the majority, a good, at least a good percentage of women, I feel like it's more about the effort behind when a man, and we're talking about heterosexual relationships, when a man is courting you, for me, it's the effort. Like if I go to a free art museum, the fact that you thought of an art museum, you thought of something special to do to me, that's what matters more. Mm -hmm. I just don't like it when a man puts in such little effort. Like you want to take me to Chili's. I'm, I, I'm 38. Like, I just don't, (laughs) I don't know for me. I don't feel like that's enough effort for me. I'm just curious to your thoughts on this because it's a very interesting viral post that's going around. Did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a coach and a professional tarot reader? Now, it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a way to connect with your guides on life issues such as career and love and spirituality. And sometimes people need one-on-one coaching to help them through breakups, toxic relationships, healing the mother wound, their spiritual path, or navigating tools as an empath. So I do all of these things to help my clients pursue life and decisions and understand themselves. So if you are interested in one-on-one coaching or a tarot reading, click the link below to get started. Okay, back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of folks are are charged around this because it's touching the nerve that is the overlap of capitalism, patriarchy, and personal worthiness, right? We have really conflated our 
worth as human beings and our worth as partners um, with how much money we make or spend or the sort of status of an experience during dating. So a lot of folks, I think, believe that effort equates financial capital. So if I take someone and we get bottle service at a club, she should be grateful because uh, I'm showing her that she's worthy of this experience, right? We are so um, conflated in our understanding of intention and worthiness in relationships that a lot of folks look at that list of the 28 places or however many there are, and they say, well, if that person's taking me here, they must not think very highly of me, right? They must not see me as a worthy enough person to put effort in. So I think it's really confusing for a lot of folks because for some people, that might be a really expensive go, especially in this economy. And it might be that they brought them to Applebee's, for example, because they love one of the desserts and it's nostalgic for them. But we are so wrapped up in having to prove ourselves as these high value people, but that we are often like misinterpreting people's gestures as indications of our actual worthiness on this planet. So I think it's a dangerous space to be in to expect somebody to perform at this level or show you a certain level of, of glitz or glamour or expense to be a demonstration of how worthy they think you are as a partner but we can't untangle that mess until we start untangling the way capitalism has, for many people, really complicated our own experience of worth as humans and as partners. But to your point, as a show of effort, if somebody has these restaurants or anything on their list is like a low effort, I don't really care. I am showing you that I'm not super interested, but I'm doing the bare minimum then yeah, I think it's important to have boundaries and to think about like, is this person showing up in a way that is complementary with how you treat yourself and your lifestyle? And if someone's preferences or their interests are different than yours, it's okay to say this doesn't work for me. But I would really love to see us do that without assigning like low value or high value labels to people, because we're all coming from different places with different intentions and in how we show up in the dating space. Yeah, I think it robs us of our diversity. And to your point, there are, I've been out with some men who have wined and dined and have spent way too much money that I wasn't even comfortable with. And that person was not remotely emotionally interested or invested. This was just something that, that this person did whenever he liked a girl. This was just who he was. He liked to spend money. And I did not, I, it actually made me uncomfortable because I had never been in that situation, but it didn't mean that he was into me in that way. And I've also had men who were into me who would do something small and a nice gesture. And I really appreciated that. And so I think everybody's different. Everybody's love language might be different, but you're right. We have to recognize that as humans, we're diverse and it, when we, when we fit people into these boxes and labels, it does rob us of that diversity. So how can we, as men and women really start to understand our own internal misogyny because that takes a lot of emotional intelligence and a lot of, um, you really have to put that bias to the side, but we all have it to some degree, right? Or how do we start to recognize that? 
Yeah, I think from a place of compassion first, right? Whether we're talking about precarious masculinity or internalized misogyny, I think it's hard to escape having elements of of that in the way that we understand ourselves and understand society because we've grown up in an incredibly patriarchal system and it's pervasive across every industry, every domain, every experience of life. This patriarchal thinking has created a ton of division between people based on this arbitrary construct of gender. And so to start, I think it's important to look at our relationships with power and how we attribute power to gender and start thinking about where we are expecting people to subvert their own autonomy and agency and where we're expecting other people to have more. And that can be a great place to examine your own relationship with your own gender and how you see your position and social location in the world. And when you're advocating for other people to abandon their own sovereignty or their own agency, I think that's a great indication that maybe you're acting from a place of unexamined precarious masculinity or internalized misogyny, because when we feel really secure in ourselves and secure in our gender separate from our relationship to power in the world, we start to honor things like people's boundaries, their autonomy, their agency. We recognize that expression in the body takes many different shapes and forms, and we honor everyone's expansiveness and also their limits in that. And that's a really liberated place to be, and it is a process to untangle the relationship between gender and power. So I think it starts by, you know, asking questions like, am I expecting this sort of polarized experience of gender in the world? And if so, how does that serve me? How does it serve the communities that I belong to? Um, How does it not serve me? What am I not able to experience as a full human if I say this is the way I have to show up in the world? And I think this is maybe kind of an abstract way to think about it, but it does really start by looking at some of the bigger systems and looking at what do humans who participate in these systems rigidly not get to experience in life. And when you start looking at that, you start seeing like, wow, it's actually really painful to be in those positions, right? There's a lot of um, self-love that gets left on the table. There's a lot of trust in relationships that is left on the table. There's a lot of um, personal fulfillment that gets left on the table. A lot of folks will go their whole lives never really knowing what they're made of because they're performing these super rigid roles um, that they've been prescribed according to gender. And it's an expensive, it's an expensive um, move to say, I'm not going to do this, but there's also a ton of benefit from stepping into something that feels more authentically you. If you're somebody who's saying, you know, this, this identity path that's been given to me doesn't quite fit. I want to try something different. It, it can cost you a lot. It can cost you um, relationships in your life. It can cost professional advancement in some cases. But the folks who do decide to take a more expansive or integrated path in their lives usually find that they are enriched with other community 
They're enriched with other safety. They're enriched with other paths that bring them joy and benefit and sometimes are even more financially lucrative when they're acting from an authentic place. So it's, I think, a small process or a a step-by-step process. It can be incremental. But when you start deconstructing, it's like shedding a suit that was too tight (laughs) and, and actually like living in your skin in a way that feels really whole. So has feminism gone too far or not far enough? Because you have this, I feel like there's this divide right now. You have some people that are like, you know, be yourself, show your body, have as much sex as you want, do what you want. And then you have this other side kind of on the left who is like, okay, if you're out there with OnlyFans or posting these bikini pictures or, you know, you're only doing this for likes and wants and desires and for the dopamine hits and you just want attention from men and that's not what men want and that's not what a, you know, sophisticated woman should do. Where's the balance? You know, is is posting bikini pictures and having OnlyFans, is that feminist or is that rooted in just wanting validation? That's such a great question. Um, I think maybe we should answer that in a couple of parts. First, I think we have to stop blaming feminism for anything, right? Feminism is a movement that is an ongoing, evolving movement that, that at its core says people are equal, right? And feminism in and of itself has had many iterations. It's had many of its own growth opportunities and has learned from its oversights in terms of how things like white supremacy and capitalism had have limited the earlier goals of the feminist movement. So I think feminism is its own evolution. And when I hear people asking these questions, like, is it okay to post a bikini pic or is it this or is it that? What I really hear is this is a tension between the quest for liberation and the quest for control over people's humanity. And I don't know that it's really worthwhile to answer the question of, is somebody just doing it for likes and attention? That to me feels really dismissive. When we live in a patriarchal system, somebody's uh, quest for, and and a very capitalistic system, somebody's quest for attention might be their livelihood. It might be the only way they know how to survive. So I'm not here to shame that person for doing what they know is the best thing for them to get by in life whatever that means to them. I don't get to decide how somebody should organize their own success as long as it's not damaging to other people, right? And and that person, the sovereignty of that person, they get to decide whether something is self-harming or not. And today, something might feel very liberating and tomorrow it might feel like it's bringing them something that doesn't benefit them. So I think we can look at this question maybe a little bit differently and ask, why are we so invested in controlling the behavior of other people, right? Because if somebody is engaging in OnlyFans content or if somebody is wearing a bikini online, first of all, why is that a bad thing, right? Why is it a bad thing to be feeling yourself and and saying, yes, I feel good in this. I like the way I look. I feel empowered. I feel alive. I feel vitality running through my veins. And I would like to share that experience with people. 
the critique of that is coming from an expectation that women or people in feminine bodies shouldn't have agency over their own desire. They shouldn't have agency over their own bodies. They shouldn't have agency over their own path in life. So I think the question illustrates the problem. Mm. But what about those who argue, you, you see the Kardashians and they're, they're painting these pictures of unrealistic expectations for girls and women. How, how do we address that? What do we say to those types of online presences that are depicting these unrealistic or realistic expectations, however you want to view it? What, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think it's a really complicated issue because on one hand, it is incumbent on us as a society to really think about how we influence younger generations and how we participate in sort of a bigger social conversation about worthiness. And I think that's really the, the, the core element here when we, when we get down to it. People who look at the Kardashians or at other people who are in center stage and they say, I'm not good enough if I don't look like that, are really depicting a larger social problem, and that is worthiness. And if we don't feel worthy of love, if we don't feel worthy of success, because as a society, we've said, this is what that image looks like, that's a bigger problem than somebody getting plastic surgery, in my opinion. Now, do people who have the wealth and the um, ability to educate themselves have a higher responsibility to showcase something different? I think we could argue that they do. I also think we could argue that the Kardashians are not the experts on social, you know, movements. And I and I want to take this away from the Kardashians because I think that like anybody who's in the public eye, they receive a tremendous amount of criticism and a tremendous amount of acclaim. Um, so it's not just about them. But these people are not the experts, and we are expecting people with big platforms to know about complex social issues. And I just don't know that that's possible unless you've really studied in this space for a long time. So uh, would I love to see people being more transparent about the cosmetic procedures they've had? Absolutely. Because I think that one, there's no shame in doing that, in having any cosmetic procedures. And two, I think it does create for people a better understanding of what's realistic for them and what's not, and what they even want or don't want, right? And there are so many people that fall victim to this idea of what success looks like. Many famous people have gotten cosmetic procedures and they've adapted. So sometimes I think that cosmetic procedures are as much a conversation about capitalism as they are about patriarchy. But patriarchy gets it gets a little bit louder, right? Because there's so much false security in our culture when we tell women how to dress, how to look. And I think it's equally as sexist when we tell women that they should get plastic surgery or should not. I think it's equally sexist when we say people should or women should be transparent about the procedures that they've had because they often get a lot of shaming for it and a lot of vitriol. Um, so it's equally sexist to demand that of them as it is to say they should be in secret and do it quietly. I just think until we have a bigger conversation about the way power is levied in this world based on these uh, divisions of gender, 
we can't really expect other people to solve all the world's problems. Because if the Kardashians stopped looking the way they looked, other people would pop up in that space. It's a bigger societal conversation. Yeah, that was very well put. I totally agree on that. And it is a, a much more complex issue than just you know, uh, the Kardashians or posts on social media. I mean, and I tell people too, you know, it's right now, modern day, we have surgery, but beauty standards have been a thing for centuries. I mean, you had, um, some cultures that bind their feet, you have some cultures that bind heads, some cultures that bind waists, you know, beauty standards have always gone to extremes and in different aspects, it just looks differently in our modern day society. So totally agree with that. Um, One thing I want to just add there is that plastic surgery is a form of body modification and lots of people participate in experiences of body modification, piercings, tattooing. Um, We could even argue that coloring your hair or painting your nails, this isn't, these are all ways that we modify our aesthetic and modify our bodies in some ways. So the fact that plastic surgery gets so much shaming uh, in contrast to tattoos or body piercings or other forms of Um, body modification to me does represent this very like punitive expectation that women should look a certain way, but can't take control in their own hands to make that happen. Right. I think it's just another way that we shame women who are trying to conform into the system that they were born into. Mm -hmm. It was so interesting because like when I, I I love Japan, love Japan, but I will say when I went there, I've never gotten more stares. I'm not even maybe some just curiosity, especially when I went to the smaller areas or the like outside of the cities because of all my tattoos and because my body is obviously very different than the average Japanese woman. And so I got a lot of curiosity, a lot of older women touching my skin and touching my tattoos. And it just goes to show you that like different cultures may also play a role in how they view body norms or, um, uh, beauty standards. It really is so complex. It's it's a bigger issue. It's a complex issue. Um, Kate, I am so happy that you came on the show because it's just even just the way that you answer questions. It it provides such a different perspective that I myself would have never thought of or would have never thought to respond in that way. And it just I think it's so important because when we have conversations with people like you, it forces us to think in a way that's different than what we're used to and you know kind of forces that neuroplasticity and our brains to to start thinking in different ways and i think that's what we need in order to create change and in order to uh to eliminate biases and to eliminate these internal misogynies that we have and so i think it's really important that uh, we have people like you to have these conversations um i would love to end with this what advice would you give to those that are listening that are maybe struggling with gender norms, especially in society and relationships, maybe even in their own family? Yeah. Oh, such a great question. Um, I think there are a few things that I would recommend. Um, one, read as much as you can. Read as much feminist literature as you can. Read about everything that you can to understand the construct of gender so that you can decide what elements of the gender that you identify with really fit for you 
and you can forge a path forward in your own identity that feels aligned with who you are at your core. I think gender is again a construct, so it's really less it's less about what clothes do you wear and what traits do you evidence and sort of how do you feel in your body? So who would you be if you took the label of your gender off, right? And would that change? Would anything about you be different? And if so, I think that's a great place to start looking at the chasm between who you think you are supposed to be and who you actually would like to be. And when that tension comes up and it creates discomfort or dissonance, if it does, I think it's super important to find community of other people who are questioning these things too. There are a lot of conversations happening in spaces that are not public and even some public spaces, but there are a lot of conversations that are happening where people are deconstructing these ideas left and right, and they are asking hard questions and they're challenging themselves. So find some community because your immediate community might not be you know, uh, talking about this stuff, they might not feel like it's safe enough to talk about these things, but there are other folks who are in it. And so it can feel really isolating if you don't have community. Um, so find another group of baddies and start reading books together, talk about it with one another, ask the hard questions of yourselves and each other. And, and really, you know, from an intersectional lens, start looking at these bigger systems because, white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, patriarchy, they are uh, really strong bedfellows. And when we start to understand the way these systems have shaped how we've been given information and how we show up in, in your life, first of all, expect to be really angry, but then expect a tremendous amount of grief. And then you can expect a lot of liberation and freedom and peace Right. So it's a process um, that I would say really starts with compassion for yourself and building community and education. And from there, the sky's kind of the limit on who, how you decide you want to live in your own skin and how you decide you want to show up on this planet. I love that. And we have side conversations and that's, that's what I, I emphasize too. Like, I love that I can reach out to you and have these conversations of things that I would have never, it's not that I'm not open to it. I've just never been exposed to some of these conversations. And by having these connections with people like you, uh, people within our space, it opens my line of um, education up because if you're only exposing yourself to, you know, echo chambers of things that you agree with or that, you know, you're on board with, you're never going to be open to other perspectives and other cultures and maybe other um, experiences that people have had. So I, I totally align with that, that, you know, community is so important. And so I thank you for, you know, your expertise and, you know, the conversations and the things that you've even taught me um, are so important. So thank you. Um, Dr. Balistre, where can people find you? I know you have a practice. You also have an amazing podcast. I'll link everything, but uh, let my followers know uh, where they can find you and how to get in touch. Oh, thanks so much. Um, Probably my website is the best place to start, modernintimacy.com, and uh, the podcast, Get Naked with Dr. Kate, or you can find me on Instagram or TikTok at Dr. Kate Balistrary. 
Awesome. All right. Thank you. And Dr. Balistrieri, thank you again for coming on the show. And um, I just look forward to continuing to see your work and where your future leads you. I'm just so excited for you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.